quite like Barry, but maybe I do need to move one or two things. Can I do anything quite like Barry? I think I lack certain physical attributes, as do most of us in comparison. So my name's Simon Van Lint and I'm a member of this church and it's my privilege to bring the third in the series where we're working our way through uh, the letter, the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Observant people will have noticed Barry kicked it off two weeks ago, Glyn spoke to us last week. In fact we are slightly out of sequence, the topic next week uh, is one that Barry particularly wanted to handle himself, so we've kind of uh, rejigged the order of things a bit, I'm, I'm sure Paul were he here would forgive us for that. Uh, what we're going to be looking at today from Timothy is some advice that Paul has in regard to leadership. And as I thought about leadership, I thought, okay, so um, who are the people that we would think of as being leaders? Within the church, what sort of people would we want to appoint as our leaders? You know, who would we have as one of our elders, one of our deacons, depending upon what background you come from? Who would we want to have as our minister? So I've got a few choices for you as we think about applicants. Would we have him? Well, obviously we can't because he's dead. But, uh, you know, hey, slow down. <laughs> he's not dead. Oh, he is. Yes, we can't go on to the next one. About, what about this gentleman? Was he a good leader? Anybody recognise him? Yeah, Steve War. Okay, yeah. In, in younger days. I think uh, certainly uh, in cricketing circles, widely admired as a, as a leader. We'll take the next one. Okay, there's Winston Churchill, presumably having his second chance. What about Winston? Was he, uh, was he someone we might admire as a leader? I'm going to say, he came pretty close to being voted the greatest Brit of all time, by the way, in a poll that the BBC held uh, a few years back. Next one. What about this gentleman? Well, uh, clearly we're not going to vote for him, are we? No. Anyone with a silly moustache like that, we're not having him as our leader. Mind you, designer facial hair is very trendy, but I'm not sure that particular one has really caught on. But what sort of a leader was he? Okay, next one. What about that gentleman? <laughs> we have the best... All that kind of stuff, yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> like it or not, he is the leader of the free world, which I guess includes you and me, though we never get the opportunity to vote for or against him. <laughs> Soon there will be an opportunity in the States. Have we got one more or is that it? Oh, yeah, no, no. What about this fella? Well, of course, we'd, we'd have him as our leader. We do, don't we? I mean, I know that's a very westernised-looking version of our leader, but there he is. Or, indeed, uh, there's another reprobate coming up last of all. Would we have this gentleman as our leader? <laughs> Just so that you didn't miss Barry in his, in his absence. Well, there he is, straight off his Facebook page, so presumably one that he's happy with. So, look, what I want to ask you, and I'm actually going to ask you to do this amongst yourselves, so talk to the two or three people around you, maybe turn around. I want you to spend a couple of minutes just talking amongst yourselves, not about just anything or about the football or whatever else. Not that anybody in this town really wants to talk football this weekend. Um, why don't you just spend a minute or two talking about, well, what are the things that we want, that we look for in a leader? What are the qualities that make for a good leader? Just spend a couple of minutes and then we'll come back together and talk about that. Off you go.
Okay, I'm going to give you about one more minute. Okay, so let's, let's bring that back together. And this is where uh, Dylan and I are going to rely on the wonders of modern technology. Tell me, what, what, what do you think? Let's start over this side up near the back because people hide at the back. And I was a university lecturer once. I know those tricks. Indeed, where did I sit when I was a student? Best not answered. Okay, so what do you think, team up the back? Thoughts? Good? Firm in belief. Now, what should happen, I hope, is... Oh, look at that, hey? Don't you love it? Thank you, Dylan. Good, okay. Integrity. Okay, that's a word that's come up already. All right, let's move into the middle and the front here. Any thoughts? Honesty. Such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue, as someone once said. Leading by example. Okay, we want people who don't just talk the talk. We'd like them to walk the walk. Yeah, okay. Listen well. Okay, that's an interesting one. Compassion. So a good listener and compassion, I guess we could say. Yeah, okay. Any more for any more? Up the back. Inspiring. Inspiring. I don't think you're up the back, Jeff, but thank you. That's a good contribution. <laughs> when I said up the back, the people at the back all just sort of... <laughs> The coffee machine suddenly became endlessly fascinating. Humble. Humble. Okay. Gary. Love. Love. Loving. Okay. And hopefully that'll all fit on the one slide. I reckon that's probably a pretty good start. Okay, so that's what we think on a bit of a poll amongst ourselves. What we're going to do in just a moment is read the passage, <clears throat> which comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3. But before we do, let's spend a moment praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to study your word. And it's a privilege we don't take lightly. We thank you that in here you have given us so much that we need. You have told us so much of yourself. You have set out the patterns and the ways by which we are to live, to learn about you, to know you and to honour you. So Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask that we will truly genuinely be encountered by it, not just as some interesting moment or as something of uh, passing relevance, but Lord, we want your word to challenge us and we want your word to change us and we want to go away having made just one more step to being more like you. And Lord, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would fall on us afresh now and make your word real to us and make it your life-changing word that speaks to each one. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's have a look at the passage. We'll come back to that slide a bit later. I hope. Okay, so this is from 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting right at the beginning at verse 1. Um, I think there would probably be a slide before that. <laughs> okay. Let me start reading it for you. Ah, well, I'll just do the first three verses uh, a cappella. 
Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So before we go too much further, I just want to say a couple of little things. Firstly, you'll notice that all of this assumes that leadership is male. Well, actually, the whole issue of male and female within the church is something I believe Barry will address next week. So I'm actually going to leave that particular hot potato alone. Let me say, however, uh, that I believe that the characters, the qualities that we're looking for can equally be found in men and women, and so I want to use them as generic, even though there's a lot of his, his, his going on there. It applies to women just as much as it does to men. Indeed, some of the things that were directed at women could also be directed at us guys. So let's look at this together rather than doing it in a divided way. I also just want to cover a couple of little word things and depending upon your translation, you may have some different versions of this. So in the NIV, which is what I put up there, it refers to an overseer. The word in Greek is actually episkopos. You might have heard of the Episcopalian Church. That's what they call the Church of England in America because we can't have a Church of England there. So an episkopos is actually the word which we get bishop from. So in some older translations, it will say a bishop trouble with using that word is we right away think of a guy in robes with a pointy hat and you know sort of big shepherd staff that is now in some denominations what a bishop looks like but the word is overseer that's what episkopos episkopos means um, and in the new testament that word is used almost interchangeably with the word for elder presbyter if you want to get sort of old church of scotland and there are one or two scots folks here so those words uh, bishop overseer, elder, presbyter are all more or less used together. So when we read those, we can pretty much read them as synonyms. You've got to remember this is the very early church. They hadn't got all kind of institutionalised and organised in the way that some denominations now have. The other word that you'll see there um, is the word deacon, which uh, the literal meaning of that word is one who is eager to serve. And in general terms, it appears that the overseer, the bishop, the episcopos, the elder, these people had a more spiritual role within the church 
and the deacons had a very practical role. But there was overlap between those things, as you might expect. So just in case you um, are wondering what the words mean, that's the background. The other thing I would say is that that word for overseer also was used outside of the church. So these days we don't talk about bishops other than in a church context. Maybe if you're a chess player, you might use that word. Um, But in the ancient world, uh, that word overseer was used in a secular sense and it was somebody who was given responsibility for a particular sphere of work or a particular group of people. But he was also quite explicitly answerable to someone who was in authority over him. So when they heard that word or when Timothy read this word, when ancient people shared the letter and, and read what Paul had written to Timothy, that's the kind of picture that they would have had in mind. So why are we thinking about this today? Why should we think about what Paul wrote to Timothy about leadership in the ancient world? Uh, well, Timothy's job or one of his roles was to encourage and to, be, to help choose and to mentor and develop leaders within the church. So for you and I, how does that apply? Well, we might be in a position of leadership already. That could be the case. We might aspire, have hopes have thoughts that perhaps we could have a role in leadership. Or for every one of us, and this will be coming up in the not-too-distant future for us as a church, we have a role in trying to identify those who we believe have leadership gifts and encouraging them and, you know, in a formal sense, electing them to positions of responsibility within our church. So actually either you are a leader or you will be a leader or you'll be involved in choosing a leader, or maybe, in fact, some combination of them. So this is for every one of us, this talk about leaders. It's important for everyone. So what I would like to do is just to go through some of these qualifications in a little bit of detail. Before I say it, what I do want to suggest is, and some of you might have been involved in either being interviewed for a job um, or actually being the one who interviews... And when you're doing that, you have to, these days anyway, you're supposed to set out a series of essential qualifications, desirable qualifications, and, you know, any other little bits and pieces you want to put in there. I want to say it's important that we understand when Paul writes these words to Timothy that he doesn't expect that every box is essentially ticked and that a person must be perfect in all of these many respects before they can become a leader. If so, where would our leaders come from? because none of us are perfect. Every single one of us is a work in progress. Strong in some areas, not so strong in others. So this is not here to put up an impossibly high barrier or make the qualifications so hard that no one gets the job. So don't be intimidated by it. Every one of us will have areas in this in which we don't quite make the grade. Well, welcome to the human race. That's how it is. The other thing you may have noticed is that there was some repetition as we read through those various qualities. Um, Now, in part, that's because Paul was just writing a letter to Timothy. He wasn't actually trying to write Paul's textbook on Christian leadership. He didn't sort of proofread it and work his way through it multiple times, as far as we know. This is Paul dictating his thoughts, and so there is some repetition there. But, of course, if he repeats something, that suggests that it might actually be important. So maybe, therefore, that means we should pay particular attention to it. And those of you uh, who've had something to do with being taught about how to educate would also know that one of the things we do in education is to repeat important concepts so that they really get 
uh, embedded in our students, in our listeners' minds. So if Paul says certain things again and again, that's okay. There's a good reason for that. What I've attempted to do, looking at a couple of different translations and also bringing together the qualifications that we see for overseers and for deacons, because there's a heck of a lot of overlap between them, I don't know whether you noticed that, is to actually try and bring them together into a few themes rather than dealing with everyone separately. So firstly, descriptions such as worthy of respect, above reproach, respectable, having a good reputation with outsiders come up again and again. And as I did a little bit of research on this, I was particularly interested to see that one of the words, the above reproach, I won't tell you the word because I'll probably pronounce it wrongly. I don't really speak ancient Greek. Mind you, probably nobody much here, maybe Ross could, could uh, correct me if I happen to get it wrong. But I did like the, the, the meaning of the word. It, it actually implied to a technique so perfect that no fault could be found with it. And in particular, it was used in the sporting world. And I love sports, so any sporting analogy has my attention right away. So um, I don't know whether you've ever watched Greco-Roman wrestling when the Olympics comes on. I've no idea what they're trying to do, but there's a couple of guys in funny outfits and a circle on the floor and they're gripping and twisting and flipping and doing all that kind of stuff. Many years later, it evolved into, you know, world championship wrestling and mixed martial arts and who knows what. But this word specifically came from that because what the opponent was always, or what the competitors were always looking to do was find some point where they could get a grip on their opponent and with that grip flip him and get him to the ground and have mastery over him. So the word here refers to someone with whom there is no weak spot where the opponent can get a grip on them. No weak spot where they can be grabbed and flipped and kept down and mastered. I thought that was a great picture and indeed in modern sport we would see this as well. You know, if, if, if you're a cricketer, you know, think of uh, Mark Waugh playing a cover drive or Ricky Ponting's pull shot. If you're into other sports, you might think of, you know, David Beckham and his free kicks, stuff like that. We, we look at these people, we admire their beautiful technique and we see in it that there is so little opportunity for error or for fault or for things going wrong. Again, I emphasise we're not to be perfect but we are certain to be the kind of person where there aren't these grip holds, these points of weakness where our opponent can get onto us, flip us and bring us down. So firstly, to be worthy of respect, to be above reproach. Secondly, to be faithful in marriage. Did you see that came up a couple of times? To manage the family well. Not surprising in a way because we do talk about ourselves as a church as being God's family. But what does it take to be faithful? In marriage, what does it take to manage your family well? Well, I was interested that some of the things that appeared on our little list there would apply there perhaps being a good listener, being compassionate, having integrity. Um, there are things about loyalty, there are things about being dependable, there are things about being trustworthy, about not giving up just when just because things have got a little bit difficult. Thanks, actually, be good to leave them up, Dylan. I appreciate that. Thank you. So the example that somebody has already shown in their marriage relationship in the way they bring their family will be, bring up their family will be very instructive to us as we look at how they might be as leaders within the church. Now I want to hasten to add this doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be married and you have to have a family but it certainly gives us a really valuable window into how people actually do as was set up the front. You know, anyone can talk the talk, can they walk the walk? Worthy of respect, 
faithful in marriage. Thirdly, temperate, not indulging in much wine, not given to drunkenness, self-controlled. I've kind of bracketed all of those together. I confess I was relieved to see that uh, you know, wine wasn't completely banned, but nonetheless, we want people who are actually in control of their desires, who are in control of things in their life, rather than the other way around, being controlled by their desires, being controlled by external forces. It's about someone who is in command or in control rather than being led. Fourthly, we're looking for people who are hospitable. And what does it mean to be hospitable? Well, it means to open your home to others. That's the obvious meaning. It also, I think, means to be willing to open your heart to other people. And, you know, in one sense, that can be quite easy. We're part of a culture where we expect to socialise and to open our homes and open our hearts to other people. But what we tend to do, quite naturally, is to open our homes and open our hearts to people who are like us, people whose company we find easy, people that we enjoy being around. Well, if all we ever do is that, in what sense is that distinctive? In what sense are we being different? So I believe that what is implied here but not spoken is a willingness to open our homes and open our hearts to outsiders, to new people, to the people that we would not otherwise naturally get together with. And that's meant to be one of the distinctives about us as a Christian community, isn't it? That we get together not just because it's easy to hang out and have a good time, we get together because together we sense the call of God to be one family, regardless of whether we naturally, easily get on together. Fifthly, being able to teach. So what does that mean? Being able to teach implies the ability to pass on truths about our faith and how to live it out to other people. Now, obviously, one clear example of being able to teach is standing up the front and talking about stuff. But I don't believe that's all that Paul had in mind here. He wasn't just thinking about upfront teaching and preaching. What would also be included here would be working with people one-to-one, being a mentor, perhaps leading a small group. Uh, those kinds of things would also apply. And, of course, it's worth remembering that the best teaching of all, as Alicia reminded us, comes not just from the things that we say, but also from the things that we do, from the example that we set, from the way that we live our lives and the way that we go about our duties. Whether we realise it or not, from a very early age, all human beings are looking, are observing, are seeing what goes on. That's what children do in the family background. It's what all of us do all the time. And consciously or unconsciously, we are patterning ourselves on the things that we see going on around us. So there's a responsibility there for us in the church, in our families, to live our lives in a way which actually teaches, without words, how to live how to be, how to do. Sixthly, we come down with phrases like not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. In a sense, I think this is uh, repeating some of the stuff about being self-controlled and not being given to too much wine. Control of yourself and control of your desires is emphasised and repeated. And again, the point Paul is making is that if a person actually can't take control of themselves how on earth can we expect that they will be able to lead and have some degree of control over others? Number seven, not a lover of money, not pursuing dishonest gain. 
the word here is actually the kind of word that refers to a hunger that is never satisfied. No matter how much you eat, no matter how much you have, it's just never enough. There always needs to be more, more, more. And of course also it refers to not pursuing dishonest gain. That is, we don't want people who've actually obtained what they have by means that are not truthful, that are not honest and are not consistent with the gospel. The leader is not to be a recent convert and must be tested. Now, we actually don't have a definition in here of what a recent convert is, so I guess there's a little bit of wiggle room here. But the danger is if we see the potential for leadership in someone who has very recently come to faith and put a lot of responsibility on them, that we may actually then inadvertently uh, lead them into a place which is too difficult. The word literally means newly planted, so we we shouldn't be asking too much of a, a seedling which is newly planted. And you know, none of us would expect, if we we're into gardening, that we would you know, grab a, something, just, you've just been down to Bunnings or the garden centre, you grab this tender little seedling and you stick it right out in the middle of the garden where you want your big tree to be, right out in the middle of summer and the heat comes down and the poor old thing just wilts away. So what we're looking for is something which has had a chance, the plant that's had a chance to grow and mature because they need special care when young and tender. They need to withstand the extremes of weather and various pests. But in due course, even the smallest thing will become large and strong and fruitful. So we shouldn't be pushing people into positions of too much authority too soon, even if we see in them substantial gifts. Ninthly, the leader must be sincere. Integrity and honesty up there, and I think you know, those words would, would kind of speak to that. Um, the word is an interesting one. It actually says that a person is not two-tongued. Okay? Any of you ever watch those old Western movies? What did the Indians used to say? White man speak with forked tongue. We did that word for word. I didn't even prime her for that. Okay, so the complaint that the Indians had, uh, North American uh, Indians as they were then called, had about the, the whites is that they said one thing and then went on and did another. And I'm sorry, history provides ample evidence for that. Indeed, that may even be true here in this country before we start pointing the finger at Americans too easily. So we're looking for people who don't speak with two tongues, who actually say something and mean it and do it, rather than saying one thing and doing another. Finally, and this was the tenth that I had on the list, we are to hold to the truth with a clear conscience, and maybe that's about being firm in belief and being honest. So what does that mean? How do we hold to the truth with a clear conscience? Well, I think it means that we are confident that, allowing for the fact we are human and a work in progress and therefore not perfect, that we have actually lived out under God as best he can in us the things that we say we believe in. I'll say that again, that allowing for our imperfections as humans, we have actually lived the kind of life that God is calling us to. Because nothing undermines trust in a leader more than hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another. We need leaders with integrity, as you very nicely said, second up there for me. And integrity actually literally means that our word and our deed are one. They cannot be teased out or pulled apart. So having had a look at Timothy's uh, list, Paul's list with Timothy, and now having a look at what we did, what do you reckon? Did we do all right there? 
I think we did quite well. Some of us might have read the passage before. I won't call that cheating, that would be unkind, but had some advanced knowledge. So as I thought about this, it seemed to me that there are really two issues here when we think about leaders. We really want to put it all together into something simple because, frankly, good luck remembering those ten points. I wrote them down. I'd have st- I would struggle to come out with them all from memory. But I think there are two things that we can draw out of this. The first is about character and the second is about competence. So what do I mean by character? By character, I mean who I am, what motivates me. And what do I mean by competence? Well, that's what I am capable of and it's what my track record actually shows that I can do. Character and competence. And, you know, I think in many respects there's a clear difference between these two because competence, as we all recognise, we've been to school, we've learned to trade, we've been to uni, whatever that might be, we play an instrument, we've learned to sport. Competence can be trained. We can learn to do things within the limits of our natural ability. I am never going to learn how to slam dunk a basketball unless I play on one of those kiddie courts. It's just not going to happen. But within the limits of our abilities, competence can be trained. But character, can character be trained? How do we develop character? How do we develop godly character, more importantly? Well... In the final analysis, I believe that only God can make major changes to character. So if we want to be about changing of our character, refining of our character, so that these sorts of qualities that we've listed up there are there, then really that has to be a work done under God. It's not something that we can succeed in entirely on our own. So character that only God can change and shape, competence that in fact we can learn and train. And if we put together character and competence in a leader, then that's where I think we find trust. Really, that's what we're looking for when we look at that that list there. Trust, of course, is all too rare. How many of us feel that our politicians are trustworthy? I see too many hands going up at that point. Um, In fact, polls would say that we live in an era where there is the least confidence in politicians and in public institutions generally that there has ever been since we started asking questions about these things of people. We have become jaded, we have become weary, we have become tired of people and institutions that say one thing and do another, that promise something but are hopeless and don't deliver it. So the world is begging for, the church is begging for people of good character and people who are willing to learn and to grow in competence. I was interested as I did some research to, uh, to look at some uh, psychologists have looked at this in a business setting. And they looked at a number of companies of a similar size and they surveyed to see what level of trust there was within the organisation, in the organisation as a whole and in the management. The interesting thing is that they concluded that a lack of trust is like a tax. So companies where there is a lack of trust in each other and in, our, in, and in leadership, uh, those companies did poorly, whereas they expressed a, a presence of strong trust between workers and in management, in leadership, as a dividend that pays the company above and beyond. And in fact, they quantified that. They said that overall, companies with a high level of trust perform 30% better than companies with a low level of trust. 
And if you've worked in those two different environments, and many of us will have, you will understand the truth of that. So the trust that comes from the combination of character and competence is vital if we are to work together well. I also wondered about the role of gifting because, of course, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts. You may recall there's a couple of lists in the Bible of those gifts. And we would also recognise, even outside of the church setting, that there are natural gifts. Some people are just better at certain things than others and seem to be that way without any immediate and direct impartation of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes there might even be an overlap between the two where God in his grace sees the natural abilities that an individual has and by the power of the Holy Spirit augments them and takes them up to the next level. Well, gifting is important. Undoubtedly it's important. That is why each and every one of us sitting here today who calls ourselves a Christian, we have been given a gift, one or more gifts by the Holy Spirit, which are there to be used together for the building up of God's people and for the glorifying of his name. So every one of us has that gifting. Some people do have more obvious gifts than others, but each one of us has a gift. But I put it to you that gifting is only uh, capable of reaching its true value in the context of good character and good motivation. And if you want a, a secular example of that, just call to mind, thinking of sport again, some of our young male tennis players. I can think of a couple of examples who are tremendously gifted, but what do you reckon about their character? And do they get to play for the national team when the Davis Cup comes out? Do people want to you know, kind of associate with them? That speaks volumes. Even in the secular world, we understand that gifting alone is not enough. There needs to be more. If you want to get a bit scriptural about it, in Matthew 7, Jesus is talking about the end times and he refers to a group of people who when he is ready to say, well, look, you know, you're not my people. I'm afraid you don't get to come with me. They say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we, you know, do miracles and cast out demons, do all these wonderful things in your name? And what did Jesus say to them? He said, get away from me. I never knew you. So the gifting, the things that they did in that spectacular way, that wasn't sufficient. I never knew you. And there, I think, is the key, the key to developing good character in our lives. Knowing God. Being known. If you want to build good character in your life, if you want to see things change for the better, if you want to see things improve, if you want to get really spiritual, if you want to see the fruit of the Spirit appearing in your lives, there is no substitute for knowing and being known by God. And what does that involve? Time spent reading his word. Time spent in prayer, in worship. A willingness to listen when other people speak things to us that might actually be the voice of God. And don't get defensive about it if it makes us feel uncomfortable. Knowing God, spending time with God over a long period gradually leads to the Holy Spirit producing in us the fruit of the Spirit, which interestingly actually matches not too badly with the list that we've got and the list that Paul put out there. Knowing God, developing good character. That's what we're on about. Do you remember there's an old saying, sow a thought, reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, 
so a character reaper destiny. God invites us through knowing him, spending time with him, learning to hear his voice, making those right choices to gradually sow into us the seed that will produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives and will produce good character. So character comes first. Competence is important, but only works well in the context of good character. You'll notice in the list that uh, Paul gave to Timothy that gifts barely got a mention. It was all about character. So, what about you and me? How does all this apply to us today? Well, you might be a leader in the church setting. You might not. Most of you aren't. You might be a leader in your workplace or in your place of study. You may have a leadership role in your family or in friendship groups that you're part of. And I I put it to you, in fact, far more of us are leaders than actually realise that we are leaders. So this is not just for someone else if you haven't got a formal title in front of your name, a little bit like the Mormons, you know, elder, whatever. Well, you may not be an elder or a deacon uh, or an overseer, call it what you will. But I put it to you that nearly all of us, at least in some spheres, have leadership roles. And if we don't, even if we're not in a formal leadership role, many of us will want to, we will aspire to, we will want to exercise those kinds of roles. And so the question then for us, given that we are often leaders already, whether we know it or not, we may aspire to be leaders. If others in the church looked at me, looked at you, if others outside of the church, because that got a mention in Paul's list, looked at each of us, how would we match up with that list that Paul has? Indeed, as you look around at each other right now, given that we'll actually be electing our next round of leaders in the near future, maybe one of the things we should be asking God to do is to say, look, would you, would you open my eyes to the people who actually meet these leadership characteristics? Perhaps that's someone you should be approaching if they're not already in overt leadership. Do these same principles apply outside of the church? Well, yeah, I reckon largely they do. So if you have a role in choosing leaders in a work setting, in your sports club, in, your, in some sort of service group that you're part of. Um, indeed, we all get a role in choosing leaders when we go down to the ballot box and ticket. You know, when we vote, we're involved in choosing leaders. Perhaps we should think about applying these principles to help us make the best choice. We are all capable of some kind of leadership Many of us know that we're exercising it. Many of us, I suspect, do not. But what Paul has set out here is for all of us today. It is about character first and competence second. As I thought about this during the week, I thought, okay, God, well, what are the, as it were, the particular points that you want me to highlight? Nothing much seemed to happen. I was really struggling with this and then yesterday morning, quite early when I was out on the bicycle, I really felt that God spoke to me and you know, I love it when it happens that I get that sense that God's spoken to me and then I come here and Miriam, the songs that she's chosen without any input from me, actually a couple of them really pick up what I think are the key points. Because what I want to just highlight in closing is going back to that word which looks at 
points where someone can get a grip on you. You remember the leader has to be above reproach, worthy of respect. The word literally means without any of those things where the enemy can get a handhold. I believe that every one of us, to a varying degree, has certain things going on in our lives which are like those points where the enemy can get a grip and can flip us and can have mastery over us. What sort of things might those be? Well, there are two that particularly came to mind. The first one, I think this is terribly common, is negative self-talk and a lack of belief. And I love that chorus. I'm no longer a slave to fear. No, I am a child of God. So many of us are held back from leadership, held up from doing the things that actually God would call us to do because we just can't believe that he would do that through us. Because we're afraid that perhaps things might not go perfectly and how would that feel? And so I want to say, if you feel that maybe there are some things that you could do but you're afraid to do so, we are no longer slaves to fear. Don't let the devil grab that and flip you and gain mastery over you. We are children of God. God does not call us into any position of ministry without giving us the ability to do so. Will you get it all right the first time? Well, probably not. I stand in front of you someone now who does a little bit of preaching. The first time I got up in church and spoke to anybody, and fortunately there was only one person here who remembers that occasion, I fainted. <laughs> I was so nervous. <clears throat> three times. Yeah, in fact, I fainted three times, that's true. So I, as someone unkindly said afterwards, and people of a certain age will get this reference, I made more comebacks than Barry Robran. <laughs> I've now learned how to disguise that fear so that mostly you don't see it. However, you don't know what I've got in this cup. We don't have to get it all right the first time, but what we do have to do if, if God is just stirring up that little call in our lives is to refuse to listen to that voice that says you're not good enough, you can't do it, it won't go well, and to trust him and to do it. And I believe that's a word for at least one person here today. The other stronghold that so many of us have in our lives are habits patterns of behaviour which are unhelpful and we might even say in a sense addictions and I don't just mean when I say addiction people often think of you know drugs and alcohol and yes I would certainly include those as places where our adversary can get a hold of us but you know there are other habits or patterns of behaviour which border on being addictions which are still ways that the devil can get a hold of us and that might be spending too much time on our screens yeah Okay? It might be actually you know, the way that we use our money and actually use spending as therapy. There are a number of different ways in which we can have unhelpful patterns of behaviour which allow the devil to get a hold and to flip us and to take mastery over us. So I believe that in every area, church, work, study, family, friends, God is actually calling a number of us into positions of leadership. Many of us are already formally recognised, others are doing it without knowing, others God is looking to raise up. And maybe, just maybe, a few of us here are people that God wants to touch and to put that call on today. My challenge to you is, will you hear that call? And in particular, are you prepared to work on those strongholds, those points where the devil could get a grip on your life under God's grace to deal with those so that you can't be flipped and can't be mastered. 
leadership is not just for those who are the few who stand up the front. Leadership is for us all. Thank you.